It was back in 2015 that Bruce Jenner, the Olympic gold medalist, American sports hero and uh, father to some famous Kardashians, <clears throat> made a surprise uh, appearance on the cover of Vanity Fair magazine. In the now world-famous photo, he wore women's lingerie and posed provocatively on a bar stool, and underneath it read, Call Me Caitlin." In a prior interview a few months before with Diane Sawyer, he described for the first time to the world the anguish of never being able to find the peace of self-acceptance. Despite all his wealth and celebrity and success and marrying and divorcing three rather confused women, he described how he had lived for years with a deep secret that all of his life, though he was revered as a model of athleticism and masculine strength that he had desired to be, a woman. And so it was that a few months later on the magazine cover, he marked his public transition to living and self-identifying as a she, as a transgender woman. Call me Caitlin. But there was something curious about that photo that wasn't explained until later. No hands. You see, even while coming out, Jenner was still hiding. One author explains, if you're a man, it's likely that your hands are longer and thicker than a woman's. If you're a woman, it's likely that your hands are smaller than a man's. A woman's hands are more delicate. The bones are smaller. The knuckles don't protrude quite like a man's. They're not as strong or hairy as a man's. Why is this significant? Because the lack of hands on the cover of Vanity Fair tells us a great deal about Jenner's struggles. For self-acceptance and the nature of the transgender debate. The fact is that in the photo shoot, Jenner went to every possible effort to demonstrate femininity and took every possible step to assert sex appeal as a woman, eyelashes, breasts, facial work. But the hands did not, could not follow. And that tells us something. Our existence simply can't be remade or recast without the remnants of our true self remaining behind. We can try to tamper with God's design but how he crafted us continues to shine through, even when it goes against our will. Our hands don't tell us nearly everything about who we are, but they do remind us about how we've been made. And all of us try to hide parts of our existence, whether physical or emotional. All of us feel shame about some of the realities of who we are. We humans have been hiding since the Garden of Eden. And since that moment, we have been craving a stable sense of identity and a deep knowledge of acceptance. 
end quote. As Jenner longs to be loved and known, he still has to hide his hands. And his experience, you see, illustrates the whole of our fallen race's condition. As we all have secret shame, things that we can't get rid of, we can hide our shame, we can forget about it for a while, we can make every effort to escape the gaze of others, but, but we still know the truth, though we try to forget it. And no amount of tears can wash away that remembrance. But is there instead another way? That's what I'm going to be talking about today. Is there another way that we can truly be known and loved and without shame? Reading Second Peter reminds us that our problems are not ours alone. We are not alone. People in the ancient world faced the same dilemmas and struggles we do, and they needed the same answers. And we're getting into a new section of the letter that raises some uh, particularly contemporary issues, which I don't want to work around. I want to set before you but I would like to introduce them today under two headings. One, Christ is our true hope. And second, sin is a great deceiver. Christ is our true hope and sin is a great deceiver. And then I'll make some particular explanation about how we can best love and minister to others who struggle in this very way, a hidden shame and a loving Christ. First, Christ is our true hope. As we've seen, as we've gone rather slowly and carefully through chapter 1, Peter has pointed us to another set of hands, right? The outstretched, loving, strong, healing hands of Jesus Christ. And we've seen in previous weeks that Christ has indeed given us, it says, his divine power. That is, his own power for life and godliness, along with his exceedingly great and precious promises that he will also fulfill all our desires. Peter has showed us the way to a fruitful and visionary Christian life, reminding us that we have been cleansed from our old sins. He's taught us to grow from faith all the way to love, and by this, confirm God's calling and election in our lives. And then when I began reading earlier, he taught us why we have every reason for confidence in God's word, and then warns us to accept no substitutes, because this is God's great answer to the human condition. But Peter then in chapter 2 contrasts this life giving healing vision of the Christian life with the false teacher's deceptive, destructive teachings. He warns, and uh, in, in some uh, really pointed and choice words in chapter 2, 
that these people are encouraging sexual freedom, assuring their hearers that a loving God would never judge anyone. Um, And he uh, begins, well, some of you have in chapter 2, how uh, many will follow their sensuality. Some difference in the text there, but uh, I think that uh, everyone has something like this in verse 3. By covetousness, they will exploit you. Uh, Covetousness, I think modern people only think that covetousness means greed, as the ESV even translates it that way. But remember that the biblical meaning of covetousness embraces all sinful desire. So that the 10th commandment says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. In the second chapter, it's the second that's emphasized. Peter describes false teachers in chapter 2, verse 10, as those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. Verse 18, although they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error, while they promise them liberty, the false teachers then, while they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him he's also brought into bondage. And so in my first point, you see, I'm, I'm highlighting this, this uh, sudden contrast, uh, this darkness to light here, the, the contrast between the life-giving vision of the Christian life that we've been studying in chapter 1, and now the false teacher's destructive heresies in chapter 2. And if Peter says, only one of these will actually give you freedom. The other one may feel like freedom, but then deliver captivity. Jesus is the answer. Christ alone is our true hope. For if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. And so Peter goes in this chapter, chapter 2, to pains to show the contrast between the truth of Christ that sets you free and the secretive lies of the false teachers, promising liberty, delivering misery bondage, and destruction. Well, this is an extraordinarily important point today when so many people are, again, falling into this false teaching that's so common both inside and outside of the church. And we want to know, of course, practically speaking, what can we do? I mean, how can we minister to people? What is the message that we have for them? What is their hope now that we perhaps are not able to rely upon the pressures of law or society or the educational establishment? What is the message that we have? What is the power? What is the hope? I mean, you might look at the Caitlin situation and say, that's just really sad. And I told you this story, not to mock, but to give you a a deep understanding of compassion into the heart of those who struggle, right? We might look at Caitlin and say, that's just really sad. But you remember what Paul says elsewhere. Look, if Jesus isn't risen from the dead, then we are of all people most to be pitied. 
If there is no living Savior, we are the sad ones. He goes on to say, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That, that we should just seek to intoxicate or kill our conscience and lie and steal and have an affair. Because if you're just a bundle of molecules, you might as well make those molecules feel good. A recent article in the New Yorker is titled, The Addicts Next Door. West Virginia has the highest overdose death rate in the country. Locals are fighting to save their neighbors and their towns from destruction. Drug and alcohol addiction, while it's affected practically every family in America, is of course only the beginning of a long list of enslaving sins in our so-called free land. We've spent billions on enforcement. We waged the so-called war on drugs. Remember that? But now the war is ending as we are slowly putting up the white flag with legalization and decriminalization and finally saying that really, what can we do? And perhaps the libertarian in you says, well, if it doesn't hurt anybody, but again, tell that to their children, to their loved ones, to their neighbors. Tell that to Bob Childress, who grew up here near the Buffalo Mountain, not far from the Bechtolds, in an alcoholic house and a hard-drinking culture. Read the man who moved a mountain about the madness and misery of what it was like in such a society here a hundred years ago when Bob became a Christian as a young man. He knew that he had to do something. So he went into law enforcement. But, well, pretty soon it became obvious that, that the law could never change people or certainly not a whole society. And hard drinking and neglecting a family and ignorance aren't crimes. The law couldn't do anything about these things. And so there was only one thing for Bob to do. What had changed him was knowing the Lord. So he became a minister. And it was a slow start. But one by one, murderers, moonshiners, hard and feared men also turned to the Lord and joined him in his work and Then there were two churches, and three, and five, and seven. The man working at Maybury Mill, last time I was there, uh, was baptized by a children's grandson. Last time I bought another copy of that book at the general store, a young man at the counter mentioned his grandmother had gone to the school that Bob started, and how Bob was able to get everyone together working for good. But of course, it wasn't Bob. It was his Lord. I stress this because we live in a world that has profound need. And what is our message? What is our answer? What is our solution? A real and powerful solution that no law, no policy, no program can fix. For what is impossible with man is possible with God, who changes the hearts and minds and lives of people for good. Peter has given us the answer. His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Chapter 1, verse 3. Christ is our hope.
But now I'd like us to come to the other side of this passage, which is our second point. Sin is a great deceiver. Sin is a great deceiver. Oh, what's that phrase? Take you... I uh, can't remember the phrase. Anyway, uh, uh, Peter writes, verse 1, False teachers will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Not openly, secretly. They'll sound plausible. They'll exploit you with deceptive words. Verse 3. Of course, we're all pretty good at deceiving ourselves, I suppose, and the Bible speaks about the deceitfulness of sin. But then there's this other problem in the church. Not only are we pretty good at telling ourselves what we really want to believe, we're also pretty good at finding other people to affirm us and being ready to believe what we should not be believing. So this chapter goes on at some excruciating length to warn the church to wake up what is hap- to what is happening and be deceived no longer. Verse 18, these false teachers that speak great swelling words of emptiness allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who actually escape from those who live in error. This sin that's able to deceive us and convince us of lies that we, in our flesh anyway, want to hear. And so the people who write books on enslaving sins, alcohol, drug addiction, sex addiction, abusive husbands, on and on, they will all tell you that we are masters of deceit and deceiving ourselves in believing the things that we want to believe. These teachers promise people liberty, verse 19, while they lead people into bondage. And he warns it's not just a bondage to sin in this life that they're leading them to, but he reminds them of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 6, turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. We find, once again, a very contemporary warning as people have crept into the church again and make exactly the same great swelling promises of at last being free while people are led down the same path. A bondage to their corruptions that ends in their own doom. And the lies that were being told in the, wor- in the world few years ago, are now being taught from the pulpit of the church. People are being told that their sexual desires define them. It's not something they do. It's not something they feel or desire. It is them. It is their very identity. And that is how they are to identify themselves. And this is the lie that the world has fed and the church has swallowed that people are their sexual desires at the core of their being. Other things that they do, well, that may be their choice, or that may be something they do or something they desire, but not their sexual desires. That is them. And that is true bondage. When you come to accept that you are your sexual desires and that you need to realign everything in your life with your identity, 
That's how it comes across today. That's what's being pressed, especially on our young people. Some of you have read the disturbing Gallup poll in which one in six adults between the ages of 18 and 23, one in six adults, identify on the LGBTQ spectrum. The vast majority of those, of course, saying that they are bisexual, about 2% each gay, lesbian, or transgender. And this will have major implications for family, children, and society. A separate poll in 2021 found that 41% of millennials want an open rather than a monogamous relationship. This should not be surprising since queer theory and its activists have long stated that fidelity in relationships is a heteronormative standard that needs to be discarded if not marriage itself. And the church is now preaching and accommodating. And maybe you think, well, your children will avoid this through a solid church and a Christian education, but this lie is not so easily avoided. It's not just the ideology that's being pressed, it's the culture. A high number of young actresses who began their careers on the Disney Channel, identify as bisexual, lesbian, or queer. Uh, I've got a list of 10 of them, including Miley Cyrus, Cyrus, Demi Lovato, Raven Simone, Selena Gomez, Bella Thorne, and so forth. And there's the ubiquity of pornography. As far back as 1973, they were reporting that exposure to pornography at a young age predicted involvement in homosexual practice. My, my, My point, I'm not gonna just tell you about the world, that sin is a great deceiver, and you cannot avoid the lie. It, it has to be met squarely and faced for what it is, that it's coming from Sunday school teachers, it's coming from our nice second grade elementary school classrooms, it's being attractively presented in our Disney heroes. It comes from the world, but Peter says it comes into the church. Verse 1, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in, you see, destructive heresies, even denying the Lord. And it's happened at a rate in the church that we might think is astonishing, but then we look back at Peter's day and we think even the apostolic churches... In their, t- in their day, in their own generation. The ones planted by the apostles themselves found the same thing. How could it happen? Because sin has a tremendous deceiving power to convince you of the things that you want to believe. You need to realize it. You will not avoid the lies. You need to become awake to them. Sin has a great deceiving power in every generation. And this is why, again and again, when the Bible lists out a number of ensnaring sins, as we prayed earlier, sins that lead people to ruin, it says, do not be deceived. Writing to Christian churches, true Christian churches, with people in them who are deceived. Sin is a great deceiver. And the price for faithfulness is vigilance. And then there are the victims. 
I mean, what is it that Mr. Howell says? Dr. Howell, ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims. And there are the people with those hands. But the parts of them that get under their skin, the shame, the struggle, and they wish they could be without, but they cannot be without. And they've been told the lie, and they've believed the lie, and it, it hasn't given them the freedom. Well, they've come out, and they're still hiding. And it's an anguish. And this is why so many stories end tragically and with suicide. And this is why people get a very tough exterior. Because all the time in the middle, they can't get rid of God's testimony to them altogether. And this is why people get so sensitive as the truth presses on them. And surgery after surgery still cannot heal the heart that God has made. And they find no ultimate way to conceal all the guilt and shame. And I'm not just speaking on the trans thing. I, I've, I, this is what I found this week when I read a number of people who came to the Lord after a great variety of addicting sins and especially of sexually licentious lifestyles. In every case, they knew that no matter how, they found that how, no matter how far they went, no matter how much they were promised. They were great swelling words of emptiness. Emptiness, in Peter's words. Not finding the happiness that they sought. Not finding the identity that at last made them feel whole. Not finding the life that freed them from shame. Well, it might have freed them from some shame and then given them other shame. But in all these cases, as I read story after story, what they said is that they at last found all those things and much more in Jesus. Their happiness, their identity, their freedom from shame, all that they wanted, and much more they found in him. And so before I conclude, there is an important thing I want to point out from this passage as Peter gives, I think uh, it sounds rather discouraging, but it is realistic, a comment in verse 2 that we need to hear. He writes that many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Many will follow. That is to say, many in the church will follow the false teacher's destructive ways. Is he just a pessimist? Is he just an Eeyore? Oh, you know, many will follow their destructive ways. No, it reflects what the Lord himself had taught in the parable of the four soils. And he says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. And the word goes forth, and some people receive it with joy, and some persecution comes, they fall away. Others, they receive it, and they start to grow. But then the desires, the desires for other things creep in. The love of pleasure included choking it out. And if many will follow their destructive ways, then we need to be prepared to know what to say to those family members and Christian friends whom we find taking a very different path.
I've recommended to you before the book of a friend of mine, Rosaria Butterfield, called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, that successful activist from Syracuse University, the professor of queer theory who literally wrote the book on feminist theory, queer theory. She wrote, I was not converted out of homosexuality. I was converted out of unbelief. Sexual sin, she says, is a fruit sin rather than a root sin. In other words, we're, we're all born, as she says, we're all born in that way. We're all born with a great variety of sinful desires, including sinful sexual desires. That's the fruit. But she repeats for emphasis, don't presume that the worst sin in your gay and lesbian neighbor's life is sexuality. It's not. The worst sin is unbelief. And what changed her life was meeting Jesus. Another writes, this is the question that we who wish to evangelize the LGBT community must answer. To what are we calling people? If we know what we are calling people from, but do not have anything to call people to, we are only sharing half of the gospel. Jesus did not say, go and make heterosexuals. He said, go and make disciples. But you ask, isn't heterosexuality the opposite of homosexuality? No, the opposite of homosexuality is holiness, end quote. And people, of course, are not Christians. They, they may go from homosexuality to heterosexuality, but you know, it's just something else then. And maybe they were ashamed here and tired of hiding things here. But until they find the Lord, the shame, the distorted identity, the lack of joy, it presses upon them still. Another tells her story. Amy was the Christian who didn't focus on the fact that I was a practicing homosexual, but focused on proclaiming the gospel message. She showed her Christ-like love. Coming to faith was an exciting time in my life. If I could share only one thing about witnessing to homosexuals, it would be to build a relationship and focus on the gospel. Treat them like you would any other unsaved person. End quote. I mean, the fact is many men and women in a great variety of lifestyles, we'll say, has, have been wounded by rude family members and peers and often by Christians, and they develop a protective shell or they push people away or they anticipate a future attack. And you're going to need extra grace and forbearance and persistence. And Rosaria specifically often tells parents, you will have to work very hard to love your son or daughter as much as the gay community is. Okay? That's her advice to parents. You will have to work very hard to love your son or, and daughter as much as the gay community is. But positively speaking, the number of people these days who had previously made a practice of all kinds of different sexual sins, but who left it behind to follow Christ is very large and getting larger. 
They are ashamed of their past. They don't wear a sticker. Uh, uh, I suppose every Christian is likewise ashamed of the sins of his or her past. But we are not ashamed of them. And glory in the fact that they, like we, are not the people that we once were and no longer live the lives that we once lived. We love them and are proud of them. And I bring that up because even if you think, I don't know what it's like, there's someone here who's been through it all. Who, who, whatever it is, if you need to talk. And if you're a friend or a parent and you haven't been through it all, okay, well, you don't know what it's like. You have to confess that sometimes, you know, like, talk to people in addiction. Well, you don't know what it's like. Well, that's true. But I do know someone who can help. I know someone who is the doctor of a soul, who knows just what you need. We were all born in sin, as King David put it so many years ago, and that imprints our deepest desires, all of us. But as we grow in Christ, we do gain victory over our sins. They shall not have dominion over us. And our sinful desires, although they do not go away until heaven, are nevertheless under the lordship of Jesus. And that is our hope. Every Christian man or woman has a life now to offer back to God. Many of those lives are still made difficult by various weaknesses and temptations. I mean, I quit smoking when I was 21. I'm 53. And, of course, most of the time it doesn't bother me at all. But every now and then somebody is ahead of me in the, at the checkout line buying a pack of cigarettes. And the old feeling is back. Isn't that interesting? Every Christian has to surmount strong sinful desires and tendencies. Every Christian is ashamed of the past and has things that they would rather not remember. And the Bible regularly describes the holy life as a struggle and a warfare. But this gives us a compassion and an understanding to the heart of our fellow strugglers. It tells us something to those. It tells something tells us something about those who have the proud exterior that they are at last happy that they are living this life while they hide their hands behind their back. That we are people just like they are, and we have found the answer to what they are seeking in miserable surgery after miserable surgery. In Shameful encounter after shameful encounter. In tearful nights and in anguished days. Jesus, don't get me wrong, is not a means to the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. We don't go to Christ to get heterosexuality. We go to Christ to get Him. And when we gain Him, We find that we have a love and a joy and a desire that is greater than all of our other loves and joys and desires. And then the chains fall off. And then we know that we are truly free and the masters of our destinies again. Because if the sun sets you free, then you are free indeed. Well, we've started with hands, so let's conclude with hands. Jesus' hands.
now and forever, bearing the marks of his cross, where he took all of those sins upon himself. His hands were and are a reminder that he was crushed, that we might be restored. He died so that we could truly live in him. And this is our answer. The good news that answers the lie, the deceitful lie, that that we worship a God with scars, a God who knows what human misery feels like, but who has both the power and the promises that will far exceed our frustrations and pains and take us assuredly to his heavenly home. He has nothing to hide. And he has everything to give. And the holding out of Jesus' nail-scarred hands does point us in the only real way. The blood of Jesus Christ, it says, cleanses us from all sin. Happiness, joy, identity, shame that is under the blood of Jesus. He is able to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and present us faultless before his presence with exceeding joy, it says. You don't need to stand before him condemned. You don't need to stand before him ashamed. Your conscience cleansed from all the dead works. You are in his love and you stand in his grace. And Jesus boasts, glories in the fact that he is known as the friend of sinners. You have no idea. He loves them so much, he came to die for them. I did not come for those who are well, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I know that personally. He sought me out. He left the 99 to go and find me, so that nothing now can separate me from the love of Christ. And that love forgives tenderly. That love strengthens strongly. He's loved me enough to come and die. He's loved me enough to continue to put up with me to this day. And if this is what you want and you need, we'll just ask. Let us pray. How good you have been to us, our Father, in coming all the way down, all the way down to us in our Lord Jesus Christ, for we confess that we could never ascend to you, that our best works fall so far, so far short of your glory, and our sins lie upon us, as it's written. But you have given us in Christ a righteousness from God. You have told us the truth that has overcome every lie. You have given us the, the hope that has overcome all of our despair. You've given us a future that is able to overcome all the shame of our past. You have brought your salvation to the world and done so excellently. We pray that even now, people here today with hungry hearts and secret shames might look to Jesus and be radiant 
unashamed, their hearts and lives renewed by your grace. Strengthen and support all of us who continue to struggle on toward heaven, who have not yet arrived, but press on to that high upward calling. We thank you for the power of God for salvation in him and pray that in our weakness that we would know your power, that your grace in the meantime would be sufficient. For we look not to ourselves.